There he is. Woo! Dallas, what's going on? How y'all doing? Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter, at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the real man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Mr. Blue Check verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's up, brother? What's up, man? So I think we should let the listeners know who are not live that we are in Dallas. Dallas, can you make some noise? <laughs> Jamar, 200 episodes, my brother. How does this feel? It's surreal, man. Before you do that, before yeah, you do, do it, that, let's okay? do it. Okay. Before you do, I gotta this recognize. Is, this is how just, it goes. Listen, yeah. I gotta recognize just a couple of people, okay? Officially, do it, do it, do it. On the podcast, the first is our tour manager, the amazing Mr. Adam Keeley. Adam, where you at, brother? Adam in the back. What's up, Adam? Adam is amazing. He's logistically why this tour is happening, and so we want to honor him. And we also want to shout out a group of people, the amazing people here at LifePoint Church. Can we give it up for LifePoint? And in particular, we wouldn't have this connection if not for a young man who I consider to be a friend and a brother in the faith from afar, Mr. Kevin Garcia. Can we give it up for Kevin? And Kevin is amazing. He served as a moderator in our private Pastor Mike Facebook group, and he's a great friend. He also has a wonderful Twitter account, too. Um, <laughs> I can't remember. I think it's Real Kevin Garcia or something like that. So, yeah, look him up. He's a great, he's a great Twitter follow. So, now, Jamar. What about the, what about the staff? We're going to get to the... I okay. thought you was going to do the staff. Oh, okay, word. Okay, so I'm alley-ooping you. Do the staff. Got it. Now, okay. you know there's no world in which you don't <laughs> Look, I did touch there the rim. No- <laughs> I touched the rim in high school. Okay, anyway, Anyway. keep going. I'm trying to be good and not do short jokes today, okay? Okay, okay. Well, we have the one and only Elodie Quetant, who manages everything about the website, all the submissions, all the way down from Toronto, Canada. Welcome. We've also got Mr. Aaron James, the pastor, who does our social media, counsels us, prays us in and out. We Beer already goes, saw Bo York, the, the award-winning producer, and of course, Tyler and I. So we appreciate you from the bottom of our hearts supporting us. Um, a lot of work goes into this, but what fuels us a lot of times is just y'all listening to Pass the Mic, sharing your feedback. We love it. So 200 episodes, brother. Yeah. Talk about the emotional feeling. How does it feel? 200 episodes. Did you ever feel like we would make it to this point? Be honest, by the way. Because I know you. We, like, I just, we're so much a garage band, right? Like, just <laughs> we folks. Are? What? Yeah, man. Like, just folks going out and, and doing something because of the passion. Yes. It's not necessarily glitzy or fancy or well-funded. And so the, for none of us is this our full-time gig, right? And, and, and that's just risky because there's always other priorities. You never quite know if you're going to have the resources to keep going. And so, yeah, there were a lot of times when I'm like, I don't even know if we can just do it, you know? I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have a most memorable episode so far? Oh, yeah, there are so many. So you almost have to break it down into categories. like Controversy, fun, (laughs) then best guess. Yeah, because most memorable can also mean negative. Like, usually when we say memorable, it's a good one. Let's do the positive. All right, so so positive, I think, 
what we not finna do episode <laughs> with me and you. Like it so just it just frames so much of what we're feeling in this moment can, right can now. Can I tell them this that we came up with the what we not finna do? I think it was 15 minutes before we were supposed to record. <laughs> You're not supposed to let them see behind the No, the I mean, we, y'all, this is Dallas, so we can tell them. But I, we came up with that. It was a very last minute because we were originally going to talk about something else. And then we just started talking and we're like, man, it's a new year. Man, what are we not finna do? And it just came up. And like we, just, we had a list of 50, 11 things. Yeah, y'all heard. Had, oh, just my goodness. A few. We need to release that, like the, the B side. Exactly. <laughs> okay, yes. so, so what are we not finna do? What else? Um, Brian Stevenson. Oh, man. When we interviewed that, Shout I mean, he's been Stevenson. a hero, hero of mine for so long. Um, and you, you, I mean, you could put Bree Newsom right there too. We just recorded that. I'm a little uh, jealous, just a dude, little. Hey, you should be. She was amazing. She was so intelligent, informative. Um, and so having actual activists on and hearing their stories, especially ones who are just, they're such good narrators, right? right. They're such good storytellers who are able to convey the drama of what they're doing. So I really enjoyed those. Uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's, there's just so many. We've had amazing guests and we've had mm-hmm. great conversations. But I, I can say bar none, one of the best parts is meeting our actual Pass the Mic listeners. Yes, absolutely. And, and you guys really drive why we do what we do. Um, and so I just want to honor our listeners. So can you guys give yourselves a hand out here? I just want to honor you guys because people don't understand we, this is not a full-time gig. This is not just what we're able to, to wake up thinking about and just devoted to all the time. So our listeners, your encouragement keeps us going. And we are actually going to have a Q&A after this episode. And so if you want to get in on the Q&A, I want you to go to Twitter. And if you don't have a Twitter account, start one right now. Okay, <laughs> welcome to Twitter. And we want you to tweet at us at underscore pass the mic with the hashtag PTM200, PTM200. And I just want to say this because this is Dallas. This is the 200th episode. Don't, don't give us softballs. If there's yes. something you really want to know, and I might regret this, if there's something <laughs> you really want to know or someone you really want us to address or something you want us to address, address please reach out to us. Tell us the truth. Hashtag PTM200. Okay, so Jamar, this week we are commemorating the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, April 4th, 1968. How do you feel about the emotional reflection surrounding the 50th anniversary? Was this something that you were excited to participate in? You were excited to think about and consider what what, what was going on internally? It's hard to capture because, so when, when, when occasions like this come around, be it MLK Day in January, be it Black History Month every year in February, or even this singular occasion like the 50th anniversary of King's assassination, it's hard to like get amped up as if it's a special occasion because this is the work we do all the time all day, every day. So there are a lot of outlets or organizations or ministries that this 50th anniversary was really huge deal because most of the time they're not addressing issues of race and justice, at least not like King was doing. And so anytime those kinds of things come up, for me, it's like, well, we, I mean, just go back to the archives. We got like 511 articles on MLK, on his legacy, on the controversial king, on the quotable king, all of these things. So we're constantly processing. What excites me about occasions like this is that other people are now paying attention too. Hmm. And so we all get to look at this together. And some of the important work that we've been doing on Pass the Mic and the Witness gets gets kind of a little bump because now people are looking into it and wanting more information. And we're like, hey, we're here. 
We do this all day, every day. So that's what's special for me about these occasions. You know, whenever we bring up Dr. King and people like him who have passed on, especially those who have been killed based upon their stance for justice and love and peace and nonviolence, it's, it's actually a very somber feeling because we need people like Dr. King today. And when we think about the reality of where our world is in terms of justice and injustice, where the church is in its stance in justice and, and in, injustice, it's very striking to see that a lot, in a lot of ways we're leaderless, right? In mm-hmm. a lot of ways we don't have that towering voice that's going to bring people together and is going to address all sides of this debate and conversation. So part of it is it's a somber feeling. Yeah. But you were actually able to go to Memphis. Uh-oh. Oh, man, what was it? And you and Bo, man, y'all just, and you had the hashtag, where is Tyler? Thank you, Bo. I really <laughs> appreciate that. But you guys were able to go to Memphis. What was the energy like? Wow. What was, what was the feeling? Memphis, the place yeah. where he was killed. Yeah, so that was very special. This is one of the things I always say about living in the South, is that the racism in the South isn't any, quote unquote, worse than anywhere else, but it is more immediate, right? Like, so you can physically visit the places where the civil rights movement happened. And to go to Memphis and the National Civil Rights Museum, which is built onto the Lorraine Motel where King was staying and was actually killed, was, I mean, I've been there many times, but every time I go, it is, like you're saying, a somber experience that we lost a prophet. We lost an American prophet. Um, actually, he was taken from us. He yes. was killed. So we make a big point. King didn't die peacefully in his sleep. You know what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying? Yeah. He was assassinated. Absolutely. And and what it does for me is it reminds me of the cost of this work. Uh, so we may not be taken down by a bullet, but it could be a heart attack, hypertension. It stress. could be all kinds trauma, of stress, trauma. Um, but so to be in Memphis for those events was you felt this experience of not only black solidarity, because there were a bunch of black folks there. And Memphis is over uh, is majority black. Um, but you also felt this really interesting sense of American solidarity. And I think that's tough for people to feel, especially in this age of divisive politics and whatnot. But everybody who gathered there to commemorate King, for the most part, um, really recognized his singular contribution and wanted to honor him for that. And there was a sense of solidarity in that, that together as a people, we had lost a leader and we were coming together to make sure that his dream was not lost. Honoring King. Hmm. Okay. Y'all ready to talk about this? Can we talk about it? Okay. They're like, we already know what you want to talk about. So just talk about it. (laughs) Okay. So one of the festivities that was in Memphis, it was another uh, conference, one that you didn't go to, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. And there was a speaker who we all know. It was a conference that was named after King. And this speaker is Dr. John Piper. And we're very familiar with him. We've talked to him. You know him. And he closed out that particular um, event. And there were plenty of opportunities of fiery speeches and challenges on justice and sermons. And so we don't want to blanket the entire statement on the event. But what we will say is that I heard his address and his sermon and it was very off-putting for me. And so I just went to the private Pastor Mike Facebook group, and I just said, man, did y'all see this? And the, the gist of what was said was that he, he doubted that King knew the Lord. He doubted King's salvation based upon some of the earlier statements that he had made during his time in seminary. And I got an overwhelming response from people who were saying, yes, I saw it. Yes, I feel the exact same way. 
And it was one of those moments that made me sit back and say, man, we should really talk about how we feel <laughs> on this. And we know this is touchy and this is, yeah. and we don't want to bash anybody. We know he's very influential in our circles. That's not our intent. But we have to have these moments of catharsis, otherwise we'll go insane and really express how did that make you feel when you heard that? And, and what do you think about some of the, the fallout from that? So I, ne- I, didn't, I didn't hear it live or attend that event, but when you posted, hey, did y'all see this? And it wasn't like, it wasn't leading at all. It was just like, hey, did you see this? Yeah, I mean, I, was, were... I, didn't, say any, I didn't even say anything. I'm, I'm known exactly. for controversial stuff. I didn't even say anything. <laughs> I was like, this is really mild Tyler right now. Uh, <laughs> but there were literally like four or 500 comments on that thread. And I read through almost every one of them. And reading through those comments, the overwhelming sensation was one of sadness and anger. And I felt very sad. I felt uh, the sorrow of so many people who felt so disappointed. Well, hang on, Jamar. So here's the thing. We have moved from being the Reformed African American Network to being the witness of Black Christian Collective. And that transition has been very intentional. It's been very public. And you've moved away from the reform circle in terms of affiliation. So why are you sad? Like, what's, where's the sadness coming from? <laughs> I mean, because that's, that, that's an right. honest question. Like, why are we checking for what? Like, that, like for me personally? For yeah, for you. I mean, for me personally, because the people who commented on that thread and were expressing their hurt and their anger, I have been there before. Mm. I don't think I'm in that same place now, but I was feeling for them who were feeling that way. Yeah. Because I remember that. Because what happens is... You think that because you subscribe to these theological propositions that you are sort of in brotherhood and sisterhood with everybody else who believes those things. Mm -hmm. But that's not always the case, especially across the racial line. And so what happens is that we sort of get our hopes up. Honestly, (laughs) we get our hopes up that, you know, here's this robust biblical truth that helps us make sense of the Bible and the world. And here are these other people who believe it. And they're talking about issues of race and justice. So, you know, what more could we want? Exactly. But then there's always something that reminds us of the divide. Hmm. And usually it's the people of color and the minorities who have to experience the wake of that disappointment. What do you think was most... What did you have the most issue with and problem with in terms of that, the way in which that was presented and framed? Because I thought the, the framing of it was very curious. I think he kind of framed it in contrast to his own sin of racism and that he had repented of that. It was kind of a weird, I didn't really understand it. And, and I didn't think that that's where we were going based upon the previous 30 or 40 minutes of him unpacking that text. So what was your biggest issue Well, I mean, and folks expressed this on a thread, and you've expressed it. Number one, the event itself, right, is to commemorate and honor Dr. King's life and legacy, which is not to say that he was a perfect man by any means. There was only one perfect person, and that's Jesus. So we know this, right? Um, But on a a date specifically set aside to commemorate the fact that he was assassinated uh, because he stood for justice, because he stood for the beloved community, which is a Christian vision of the kingdom, uh, to... To wonder aloud about his salvation, I think, um, points to that divide, right? Mm -hmm. Where we are, I would say, folks in the Reformed tradition are so hype about orthodoxy, but seem to push aside orthopraxy, Mm -hmm. that we can't see a man like Dr. King, who sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of love and justice, 
And we're going to question his doctrinal purity. Yeah. But we won't question that of a slaveholder. <laughs> right? Look, look, everybody talks about... It's early, bro. We, we I'm just saying, already? listen. Everybody, okay, everybody talks about Jonathan Edwards, right? Yes, he held slaves. We don't talk as much about George Whitfield. One, he's British, but he was the Billy Graham of his day. <laughs> Easily the most popular uh, person, not just preacher, most popular person probably besides the King of England at the time, right? Yes, absolutely. And so he comes to the United States. He starts an orphanage near Savannah, Georgia. Wonderful, you know, altruistic thing to do, right? Well, it's a nonprofit, so it's always struggling for money. Hmm. Well, X leads to Y, and he gets a, he gets a plantation, hmm. and somebody gives him slaves. And it's so profitable that he not only supports an, the or, the it, the money not only supports the orphanage, but Georgia, which was founded as a yes. non-slave yes. territory. Absolutely. He ends up writing to the governor and saying, hey, y'all need slaves. This will keep the territory financially Their solid. Bodies are built for the heat. Bodies are built for the heat. So he's actually advocating for the growth and expansion of slavery. But I never heard that. No. I spent five years getting an MDiv. Hmm. So we won't, you know... Our pastors, teachers, the people we look up to uh, in this tradition will mention positively all these figures like Whitfield never bring up a question of their salvation. But, but when it comes to a, a black preacher, preacher, yeah, this man is a pastor in the black church. <laughs> Bruh, yes. I mean, what are we? Yeah, you you have to believe the fundamentals. And yeah, you're, you're he get run out in the yeah, south. Get run out in the fifties like, and sixties, right? You, you think Daddy you, King is letting? <laughs> him, I mean, come on, seriously. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so and so, one of the things we got to look at King's sermons, right? Absolutely. What he actually preached in the church. I mean, this man was basically giving altar calls. Like he's he's a, and then. Beyond his doctrine, right? Beyond the seminary papers he wrote, which I wrote some ratchet seminary papers. <laughs> like, we I ain't going to judge release, nobody. Release Jamar's ratchet seminary <laughs> I ain't papers. judging nobody on what they wrote in seminary. Uh, look, I'm going to start a Kickstarter. We're going to get them papers. I need to see Start that. a hashtag. Um, so, so, but when you look at somebody's life and example, you will know a tree by its fruit. And this man's fruit reverberates half a century later. People still talking about economic justice. They're still talking about nuclear disarmament as he did toward the end of his life. They're still talking about racial justice and what that looks like to truly be equal. And we're still quoting this man and his words and his thoughts. So if you look at somebody's life and example, their orthopraxy, we've got to take that into account. And we can't, not that orthodoxy and knowing who God is and what he teaches isn't important. But you will know if you truly understand doctrine by how you live well, it out. And also, I want to say this. I think it's really important for, for people in white evangelical settings to understand this idea of if you are disconnected from a, an ethnic group's experience for mm, centuries, say that. you can't then parachute into their experience and understand how they do church. Like, you can't be a tourist. You have to be a student, and you have to understand the things in which we articulate in predominantly black and brown circles may sound different, but may actually be the same or may sound different in a way that encourages you to change. And But if you look at us as a project, if you look at us as a, a group to police, then of course you're going to think that we don't have orthodoxy because you're not appreciating 
who we are. And so it's really strange. And, and, and I got to say this, Jamar, because I think this is my biggest problem with that particular um, moment. And I haven't listened to the entirety of the sermon, so don't hear me saying they're all worthy of dismissal. There were a number of friends that we have that were there, and I'm so glad they were there. But it seemed as though Dr. Piper in particular was using this and others were using this as an opportunity to talk about racial unity, racial reconciliation. And if that's what you're doing, great. But if you say it's about King, then we kind of expect you to talk from the vantage point of where he came from. Mm. And so my thing is don't use King as an opportunity to talk about racial unity and racial reconciliation if you're not going to pay the same price that King paid to speak and be vocal and to be prophetic even to your own tribe. So that's where I was kind of, I was, I was like, man, how are we using King and then discarding King, using, right. discarding, using, right. discarding when it feels comfortable. And so that's what to me, and again, I hope people aren't reading this. As yeah, yeah, I right. really hope, but it's I, not. It's we have not. to really talk about this because I think it's really important for us to, to do this moving forward, to understand each other. That's right. And it's about more than a single person or a single comment. No, yeah. you, know, you know, that's just an illustration. But there's a, there's a, there's a bigger story on, going on here, right? We, I really feel my heart is heavy for folks who look to the people who colonized us to decolonize us. It's not going to happen that Well, way. thank you for joining us, Cyril. <laughs> And again, I'm not talking about a particular individual or statement. I'm talking about the fact that if you look at American Christianity, from the jump, it has been seeded with ideas of white supremacy and racism and paternalism, right? And so, uh, as our sister Akemeni Uwan wrote, we have to decolonize our discipleship. And so that means looking at different sources and means filtering what we've heard in a different manner. And I also think we got to talk to black folks, right? Like we are just sometimes so eager for acceptance from the dominant culture that we'll smooth over any inconsistencies, any injustices, all just for that open door. We'll let y'all in, all for that seat at the table. We'll let y'all sit at our table, which is built and constructed for us, but we'll throw you a little bone here and let you, you know, sit at the big kids table. You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, see, but you were in Memphis, but you didn't. You were at a particular event in Memphis. Yeah. You were at the MLK 50 event sponsored by the National Civil Rights Museum, connected to the Lorraine Motel. Why did you go to that event? That event, Jamar. That okay. Event. Well, so it it was common. It was just it was just like obvious to me that you go to. Memphis, where the National Civil Rights Museum has been putting in work for decades, commemorating and remembering King. And so that was there, but also the fact that the organizers were black, they were not having debates about King's, um, you know, rightness or salvation or something of that. They were talking about, they were assuming the dignity of black people, not having to prove it. Uh, to to their audience, they were also assuming the rightness that justice and proclamation of the gospel go together. And you also mentioned that there was a heavy presence and a centering of black women. Oh my! Well. Okay, so yeah, the first so Bo and I went up there for the events. The first event we went to 
there were four speakers. All of them were women, and three out of the four were black women. One of them was Bernice King, the youngest child of Martin Luther King Jr. And that put just a personal face onto the whole event because she was talking about the generational trauma that she and her family had endured because they lost her father. And then she brought up this point. So they also centered Coretta Scott King. And I love it in the new exhibit at the Civil Rights Museum. They call Coretta Scott King the architect of the King legacy. Hmm. And think about it. After King died, that's the truth. Who was going to preserve his memory rightly? So Coretta Scott King had the wherewithal all the way back in 55 when he was doing the Montgomery bus boycott to start saving his papers, his sermons, newspaper clippings. And she did that throughout his career, 13 years as leader of the movement. So she bequeathed to us a legacy. And then when they wanted to do all these museums, when they had King Day, uh, all of these ways of formally commemorating him, she was the one, the primary person who was like, yay or nay. To all these things, and this is how it has to be shaped. So, all of that to say, when Bernice King spoke, she spoke not only of the trauma of losing her father, but after that, she also, in a sense, lost her mother. Yes. Because mm-hmm. now her mother becomes the point person for wow. King's legacy. So, her mother, who had always been home when King was traveling and raising the kids, now her mother's out of the house because the father has been killed. And she's doing all that work. Not only that, there's also all this other trauma. So she mentioned the fact that her uncle died under mysterious circumstances. He was found face down in a pool, but there was no water in his lungs. Wow. Indicating probably he didn't drown. Another one, her grandmother. Yes, was killed. Was killed in a church. church. Mm. Killed in a church shooting, right? So I want The person who killed her, I just want to say that the person who killed her, it's, it's chilling because I came across that that newspaper article recently, the New York Times article, and the person who killed her said, it was a, I believe it was a black man, and he said, black ministers are a threat to the black community and they must be stopped. And so he came in with the intent of doing physical harm mm. to black ministers mm. in particular. They're a, they're a threat to the black community. So, I said, chills up my spine, bro. I'm saying, and done rightly, all Christians should be a threat to the system if it's unjust. Yes. I wanted to go to the events commemorated by the National Civil Rights Museum because of talks like that. Mm. Who else did you meet? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I uh, met. Hey, don't rub it in, okay? Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just asked who you met. Just give us a list. Um, I met Bree Newsom. Of course. Who is a the, phenomenal Shout out activist. to Bree Newsom. Yes, so we have a podcast um, episode with her. Check it out. And so she's one of our contemporary civil rights leaders. And it was wonderful meeting and, and actually getting to converse with her. I met with Roland S. Martin, who oh, man. Roland Martin. Wow. is an incredible journalist. So I walked yes. up to him and I was just like, look, we're, we're sort of a faith-based media startup. And what you're doing, so much of it being insightful commentary, but also unapologetically black. I just thanked him, got a selfie with him. That was kind of cool. I met Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. Oh, my gosh. Like, she was my lifeline in college. I'll save it because we work in, hopefully, you know. (laughs) You can't got to let the people know that. But anyway. (laughs) But so I met her, was able to, to, to just give her a hug and thank her. Um, Jesse Jackson walked by close enough. I smelled his cologne. I mean, I don't know if that's weird. <laughs> he just walked by. Uh, doing too much. I was right in now. the same, <laughs> I was in the same room with John Lewis. Just a bit. Um, I met Arnie Duncan, former Secretary oh of Education goodness. under wow. Barack Obama. So, yeah, I also wanted to go there because 
of the guests. And the people they invited were the ones doing the work on the front lines. Mm. And I wanted to hear from them. I didn't want to hear a conversation about why we should be engaged in justice. I wanted to hear a conversation about what it means to do justice. It's different. It's very different. Now, you know, Jamar, as we talk about and kind of wrap up this MLK commemoration, and there was a documentary that came out recently called King in the Wilderness. Mm. Has anyone seen that documentary? It's phenomenal if you have not had the chance to see it. And it talks about the last 18 months or so of his life. And when I saw it, I saw the, the distinct reality that King, in, in a way that I hadn't seen before, you know this, but in a way that I hadn't seen before, that King literally was a man without a home, really. Mm. I mean, he was really a nomad in the sense of he didn't really land in any particular spot. I mean, he would challenge black ministers. He would challenge the, um, the American white moderate. He would challenge the White House. He would challenge all of us. And so he was really and truly in the wilderness. And as we come up on our 200th episode, it really led me to a moment of reflection to say, you know, we're kind of in that spot. I don't want to say we're Dr. King. We're kind of in that spot of being nomads. We're kind of in that spot of being in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like there's, when we talk about the synthesis of faith and justice, the closest thing to a home I have is the witness. Mm. And so... As we talk about that, I feel like whenever we step into some of these events and step into some of these circles, there's a distance between, uh, Aaron and I talk about it all the time, we feel like we're going home, but we feel like we haven't found the home yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you feel about being in the wilderness? Does anyone else feel like they're in the wilderness, by the way? Raise your hand. Wandering in search of a home? Yeah. How do you feel about that? Absolutely. That's a a perfect analogy, right? So um, it's just so interesting in Genesis 12 when God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, he says, go to a place that I will show you, Mm. that I will show you. Yes. He doesn't say X marks the spot, go there. He says, you're going to just wander and you're going to be following me wherever I lead you, but you're not going to know the ultimate destination until you arrive. But what it's about is faith in God, Mm. that he's taking us on a journey. And although we don't feel at home in the world, we're at home with the Lord, right? So, but I very much feel that sense of wandering especially as we look at the witness. So on October 31st, 2017, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we changed our name. We pivoted to the witness. And what that was was a sort of organizational statement. And this isn't all it was, but part of what it was, was an organizational statement that we're leaving this particular land, this theological land, this theological homeland, And we are headed towards something else, but we don't quite know where it is yet. We don't know where home will be. And so in the meantime, in the interim, we're in this wilderness wandering, and it can be lonely because you feel like you don't have a place. I mean, we sleep in tents, not brick houses, right? Right. Um, And so we do want the witness, though, to be that group of people because, thank God, we don't have to wander in the wilderness alone. Hmm. And so the witness is that group of people. <laughs> yeah. We out here together. We may not know where we're going, yeah. but at least we're in it together. You know, I've, I've been thinking, Jamar, that we've been looking for an institution mm. when really we should be looking for people. And, you know, someone was asking me recently, you know, where's home for you? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I'm from Pensacola and that's, that's home. But when my daughter was born... Um, when I saw her, I said, home is wherever my wife and my daughter are. Amen. 
home is wherever my family is. Bruh. And what I think we're going to find is that even if we never get to the mythical institution that meets all of our criteria, we got a people. And yes. we found a people in the wandering, in the wilderness. And y'all are home. You're home. Yeah. Man, why you got to... It's good, bro. Why you got to do that? It's poignant. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just dramatizing the moment. No, it's so real. But it's so, but it's so real, though. We have to recognize that we're not looking for an institution. We're looking for people. That's right. And, and we, as long as we have the people, we have a home. And our critiques, because this might sound kind of harsh. I mean, the podcast sure. sound kind of harsh to people. Is not to tear people down. No, no. It's to build people up. So if we are a people then we what kind of people are we? That's what we're concerned about. And so as we bring up issues of race and justice and how, and how it is addressed or misaddressed, it is, it's about speaking the truth in love. Why? So that we can build each, up, each other up. Yes. And so the body grows when each part is functioning as yes. it should function. Yeah, we don't expect perfection. We don't expect perfection from anything. But what we do expect is faithfulness. And what we do try to do as best as possible is recognize that the greater the platform, the greater responsibility to speak the truth in love. And so, man, I don't know about you, but if we're going to be in the wilderness, I'm glad I got you with me, brother. Hey, likewise, brother. I'm glad we got Dallas with us in the wilderness. And that's it. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. Did y'all enjoy that? All right. If you...